0: want to invite you to open your Bibles um, to the book of Revelation chapter 4. If you're just joining us today, we have started a series uh, a couple of months ago now, a little bit longer uh, in the book of Revelation. And we are going to continue walking through uh, that this morning. I want to begin with a story. Uh, m- many of you will know that a couple years ago, uh, you blessed me with a sabbatical break, a sabbatical rest, and my family took that opportunity to travel across Canada by motorhome. We bought an old motorhome. We drove from our home here in Edmonton all the way <coughs> to the furthest east point of North America, Cape Spear in Newfoundland. And along the way, we saw a lot of cool things, had a lot of really neat experiences. I want to share about one of those experiences that happened uh, in our nation's capital, Ottawa. We spent a few days there, visited a friend across the border in Hull, Quebec. Uh, saw the Parliament buildings, walked along the Rideau Canal. But one of the coolest things we did was we went and visited Canada's Cold War Museum. Now, the Cold War uh, was that period of history between uh, World War II's ending, uh, 1945, and 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down and and, uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union two years later in 1991. Now, during those years, the United States and the Soviet Union... Uh, grew to become global superpowers. Uh, They were divided sharply ideologically over uh, capitalism, communism, democracy, autocracy. Uh, And that bitter rivalry fueled a proliferation of nuclear weapons buildup. Uh, Tensions became very high. And in the late 50s, while John Diefenbaker was our prime minister here in Canada, he commissioned the construction of a secret military bunker, designed to house key government and military personnel in the event of a nuclear attack on Canada. Uh, We visited this bunker, which is now Canada's Cold War Museum. It was built on a farm about a 20-minute drive from downtown Ottawa, out in a rural farming community, the middle of nowhere, this place called Carp. It it is 100,000 square foot four-story building, 75 feet underground. It was constructed uh, with 32,000, for any engineers or construction people, 32,000 cubic feet of concrete, um, 5,000 tons of steel. It was completed in just 18 months. Designed and constructed to withstand a five megaton blast within two miles or two kilometers of the site. Uh, it was operational from 1961 when it was completed all the way up to 94, and it was designed to house 525 uh, personnel, sorry, 535 people for up to 30 days. It was all already always fully stocked and ready to go into lockdown at any moment. And one of the incredible things about going to visit this place, I have a picture that I'll ask our tech people to put up behind me, is that you would never know it was there. Uh, it's just this steel garage in the middle of a field, basically, in this small rural community. You would never know that there is this massive structure there where 535 people could live for a month underground, just completely unseen. It was a fascinating place to visit, fascinating tour. And it illustrates the point that I want to begin with this morning, and that is that there is more than meets the eye. Nothing's are not as they seem. The title of the book that we're walking through, The Revelation, literally means unveiling. In this book, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real, so that we can see what is really true, so that we can see what at this moment is unseen with our physical eyes. Over the last seven weeks, we have walked through the seven letters of the Revelation, seven messages dictated by the exalted, glorified Christ to John to pass on to the churches in Asia, the province of Asia, present-day Turkey. The year is 96 A.D. Domitian is the emperor, a brutal tyrant. Because of his faith in Jesus, John, the disciple of Jesus, now an old man in his mid-80s, has been exiled to the island of Patmos, this volcanic lump of rock 40 miles off the coast of Turkey, uh, this place where Rome deposited troublemakers. John, because of his faith in Jesus, the proclamation of the Gospel finds himself there. And on the Lord's Day, he is worshiping in the Spirit, and he hears a voice, a loud voice behind him, like a trumpet. And John turned to see the voice, and he sees before him Jesus, the same Jesus that he followed 60 years earlier through Palestine, only now exalted and glorified. And John falls on his face before Jesus as though dead. And Jesus reaches out his right hand and he puts it on John and he says to John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, glorified and exalted, then commissions John, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Uh, We have walked through letters Words of Jesus to seven specific churches spread throughout the Roman province of Asia. But John's commission was to write all that he sees, not just these letters. And so though we have focused our attention there over the last seven weeks, there is so much more that is yet to come. Write all that you see. He has already seen the resurrected, glorified, exalted Christ. We saw in chapter 1 his initial vision. Here in chapter 4 we come to John's second vision in the Revelation. Now before we turn to our text, before I read chapter 4 to us, I want to remind you of a few important contextual things uh, that arise from the letters that we've just walked through. Each letter uh, begins with a description of Christ, the Christ that John saw here on this island of Patmos, the the Christ of his vision of chapter 1. Uh, He is described in each letter in one as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, The one who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. The one who has the sharp double-edged sword. The one whose eyes are like blazing fire. The one who is holy and true and holds the key of David. The one who holds the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. The one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The ruler of God's creation. This Jesus, who stood before John, gave these messages. The content of each followed a relatively stable pattern. It began with praise or commendation, affirmation for that which was good, with the exception of two letters, two churches that received no words of affirmation, followed by censure or rebuke, again with two exceptions, two churches that did not receive a rebuke. This warning and admonition. And then each has this promise of an eschatological reward that is to the ones who conquer, the ones who are victorious, there is this promise. Now here is what is important for us to understand. These churches, Jesus knows, these churches are about to face a great crisis, a crisis that looms on the horizon. And these letters, these messages to them, praising them and affirming what is good, censuring what is not bad, or what is not good, rebuking them, these messages center on their readiness as the people of God, or lack thereof readiness for what is about to come. Each of these churches, some already facing some measure of suffering, they' are about to face external threats, pressure from without and internal weakness. They, with this crisis coming, they need to be prepared for what is about to come. And so Jesus dictates these messages to them to prepare them for what is to come, to encourage the faithful, and to warn those who are ill prepared for what is about to hit. Now, with all that in mind, I want to have you uh, grab your Bibles if you have them and follow along as I read chapter four. Just understand, chapter four and chapter five fit together closely, so. You'll want to make sure that you're here next week, because these two parts really fit together well. We'll limit our attention to chapter 4 this morning. Revelation 4, 1 to the end of the chapter. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder." In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. I want to do three things with you in the time we have together. Three questions. And we'll spend most of our time uh, answering question one. But three questions. What does John see? What does it mean? And how should we respond? What does John see? What does it mean? And how should we respond? John writes, after this, after what? That is, after his initial vision, he was on the island of Patmos in the spirit, worshiping God, and he hears a loud voice behind him like a trumpet, and John turns to see the voice, and he sees there before him the glorified and exalted Christ. And Jesus commissions him. And and then, if you will, the revelation is kind of interrupted for two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, while while John shares these messages from Jesus. And it's it's connected to that first vision of Christ. After After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. John is on earth. John is on the island of Patmos, this volcanic lump of rocks in the Aegean Sea. And while on this island, here on earth, John receives this vision. He looks, and he sees a door standing open in heaven. Jesus pulls back the curtain. Jesus lifts off the cover. He unveils something. John is not seeing something that is distant He's not seeing something that is far away removed. He's not seeing something that is, is in the future. No, the curtain is pulled back, pulled back and John sees what is right now true, hidden by the thinnest of veils. A door is opened and John sees. George Carrod writes this, Heaven is a part of the universe, but a part which is entered by the opening of the spiritual eye rather than by any external form of transit. John looks and he sees a door, a door that is open, and he hears a voice, the same voice he heard earlier, a loud voice like the voice, like the sound of a trumpet, the voice of Jesus, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And John is swept up by the Spirit and finds himself at that door, looking through that door. He, he looks from earth into this dimension, this other dimension, a reality that is hidden to his physical eyes, hidden to our physical eyes, but nonetheless is very true, very real, and very near even right now. The door is open. And what does John see? Verse 2, "...and there before me was a throne in heaven." The first thing John sees is a throne, a throne in heaven. The word throne will appear in the book of Revelation more than 40 times, 17 times in chapters 4 and 5 in this vision that comprises these chapters. He sees a throne, a throne which in the ancient world certainly, perhaps to a greater degree than we would recognize it, a throne that represents authority and power and sovereignty. John sees a throne. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. He sees a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. How do you describe the indescribable? John is given this vision, the curtain's pulled back, and he sees, he sees God Almighty sitting on a throne. Imagine for a moment, I don't know if there are still today tribes that are off and untouched by modern civilization, but imagine for a moment, how would you explain to someone, how would you describe a cell phone or a laptop computer or even electricity to someone who has not been touched by modern civilization? What, 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 like, how would you describe the indescribable? How, how would you describe something to people where, where there are no words for this, no categories for understanding? John sees God Almighty on a throne. Our imaginations are called into action. John writes, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. How do you describe the glorious appearance of God, the one who sits on the throne? John reaches for the best language he can and he, 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 he thinks of, of gems, precious stones, jasper and ruby. It's impossible for us to know precisely what John saw, partly because the ancients didn't use the same uh, terminology in their classification of precious gems. The jasper almost certainly, though, was a white stone, either opal or diamond. The ancients had not yet learned how to cut diamonds in perfect symmetry, so they were clouded, they were white. The second stone translated ruby, probably a sardius or a carnelian, a red gem, I am told. Emerald is, like ours, probably green. Now, probably evident from my description just now, I'm not real up on precious gems and stones. I remember when I went shopping for an engagement ring for my wife, going into a jewelry store probably for the first time in my life. But if you've been there, you, you know that often there are cabinets with bright lights and diamonds and gold and just sparkling everywhere, glittering, shimmering. Sparkling. John looks through this open door and there he sees a throne and one sitting on the throne who who is radiating, shimmering, spectacular glory, majestic brilliance. Paul in 1 Timothy describes God as the one who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. John looks into heaven, he sees a throne, and on the throne is God Almighty in all his glory. Spectacular, brilliant, glimmering. But he sees more, we read on. Verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them, them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and in crowns of gold on their heads. Now, who are these 24 elders? Various suggestions are made. Some conclude that this is an exalted order of angels. But I want to suggest another answer, a better answer, I think. One that is, in fact, uh, suggested in the number itself, in the number 24. Numbers in Revelation, we will see this over and over again, numbers in the Revelation uh, mean something. Numbers are part of the symbols, part of the imagery. And and so when when you hear the number 24 and think about... Your biblical knowledge, like does anything come to mind? Maybe not. Not going to do a lot of math. But 24 is 12 plus 12. And 12 certainly is a significant biblical number, right? Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And when Jesus came and he reconstituted Israel, that is the people of God, he reconstituted the people of God, no longer the tribes but now around him, he called 12 disciples, 12 disciples. And 12 makes 24. I would contend that these elders represent the people of God, the whole people of God, the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God, those uh, before Christ, those after Christ. We read on and come to a phrase that we will encounter yet several more times in the Revelation. We read, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. How many of you enjoy a good storm? I have had a few occasions in my life where I've had the joy of experiencing the power, the awesome majesty of, of God through a storm. When I was 21, I think, I was doing construction in Kelowna in the Okanagan, and I lived one summer in a little cabin, 12 by 12, on top of a mountain in the middle of an apple orchard. And I remember one night being woken up as my cabin shook. It was, I could not sleep. It, was, it got a little annoying after a while. It was this amazing demonstration of, of just raw power. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In, in the ancient world, before things like nuclear bombs, I mean, this was the greatest demonstration of, of power these are the words John reaches for to describe this experience as he sees this throne with one who shines brilliant light and there's thunder and lightning and everything shaking. I said to you earlier several times, I think, that the Revelation is comprised of 404 verses and over 500 direct or indirect allusions to other biblical texts. This is one of those moments. This language of lightning and thunder and Shaking. Do you remember in the Old Testament story, God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. He leads them out miraculously, powerfully through the Red Sea into the Sinai wilderness and to Mount Sinai, the place where God had first shown up and appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And God sets limits around the mountain. He says, do not go near the mountain. Do not touch the mountain. You will die Because that is where God dwells. God dwells on the top of the mountain. And then he tells Moses to gather the people at the foot of the mountain, not to touch it, but to come. Because he is going to come down, and he is going to speak so that they hear his voice. And here's what we read in Exodus. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. This language of thunder and lightning and and rumbling is a language from the Old Testament, a language of theophany that is of an appearance of God. There can be no doubt. That John, as the curtain is pulled back and he's brought to this open door, he sees the throne and it is God Almighty, the one who has delivered the people, the one they worship. This is Yahweh. Next, John tells us, the next thing John tells us is interpreted for us in the text. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. God. You may recall, if you've been with us, we encountered this language of seven spirits earlier on in chapter 1. And I contended then, I'll contend again, that this is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Not that God has seven spirits. Seven, again, is a symbolic number we're going to encounter over and over again through the revelation. Seven speaks to the completeness, the fullness. The seven spirits is simply saying the, the, the full, uh, fullness of the Spirit's ministry. This chapter together with chapter 5 will will reveal to us God, uh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Here we are encountering Yahweh on the throne and before the throne the Holy Spirit. And in the next chapter we will encounter the Lamb who was slain, Christ the Son, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yahweh, the God who is one and yet has revealed Himself in plurality. Before the throne is the Spirit of God. And then we read also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. How are we to understand this part of the vision? Well, in the ancient world, the sea was thought to be the place of chaos, the source of evil. Daryl Johnson writes this people of John's day feared the sea, for it represented the forces of chaos that are always trying to suck the orderly cosmos back into the void. The sea was understood in the ancient world as a place of cosmos, uh, or chaos, the place from which evil came. In fact, at the end of the revelation, we're going to read that there will be no more sea. Here before the throne is the sea, but it has been stilled. It has been calmed. Chaos is subdued before God. At this point, the vision gets a little bit stranger Yet... We read, beginning in the middle of verse 6, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. It's hard to know what to do at this point. Again, some suggest that the four living creatures represent another exalted order of angelic beings. That may be the case. I want to suggest a different answer. I want to suggest rather that these four creatures represent, speak to uh, animate creation, all of God's creatures. Four is the number of creation. The scripture speaks regularly the four corners of the earth, the four winds, the four points on a compass. I would contend that these four creatures represent God's creation, animate creation. I'm reminded of the great hymn All Creatures of My God and King. Lift up your voice and sing. Here I would suggest that we encounter in the 24 elders the people of God, the whole people of God, and in these four creatures all of God's animate creation before Him, worshiping. What about the wings and the eyes? You know... This isn't a math problem when we have to try and figure out every detail. This is is just engaging our imagination. And this language clearly comes from the book of Ezekiel and the book of Isaiah. We go there and we encounter creatures like this with wings and with, with eyes. Listen to this from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. I could read on other texts from Isaiah and Ezekiel. This language comes from their language that John would have been informed with. And so John reaches for this language to describe what he sees. And even the song of these four living creatures echoes the song of the seraphim in Isaiah. And we've nearly come to the end of what John saw. He's described what he's seen. But in the last verses of our text, he yet describes what happens, what he saw happening. Verses 9 to 11, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship Him, who lives forever and ever, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they were created and have their being. What does John see happening? What does John see? John sees a throne. He sees the throne of God Almighty, radiant, in splendor, in majesty, brilliant, shimmering, glorious. He sees the people of God gathered around the throne on other thrones. He sees all of God's living creation before the throne. He sees worship of God Almighty declaring the greatness, the gloriousness of God. What did John see? John saw all of that. Second question, what does this mean? And this is the critical question. If we are to read the Revelation well, we must engage our imaginations. And Gordon Fee gives us a good warning. He says, this vision is not intended to be understood within the time frame of human history. That is, in opening this door and pulling back the curtain, lifting off the cover, Jesus is not just showing John an event that happens at some point along a timeline. Jesus is revealing to John what is really real, what is really true, what is going on at all time, what, what is reality. In the Revelation, Jesus draws back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see the reality of all creation all the people of God gathered around God in His glory in worship. What this vision emphatically declares is that at the very center of the cosmos, there is a throne. There is a throne which symbolizes, which points to authority, sovereignty, power. And there is a glorious one on there. God Almighty is sitting on the throne. He has authority. He is sovereign over all things. And He alone is worthy of praise. What we encounter in this vision is the key to understanding the Revelation as a whole. I would suggest it is the key for us to live lives faithfully as disciples of Jesus. Here we are called to look up. See what is really real. See what is really true. This is the theological perspective from which we, can, we, we need this theological perspective so that we can live rightly as disciples of Jesus. God is the one on the throne. God is above every other throne. What we need to remember is that Jesus gives this revelation to John to give to the churches in the province of Asia. The year is 96 AD. Suffering has already begun in some places, but Jesus knows that it's about to get worse. He knows that his people are about to face the crushing pressure of an empire that is utterly at war and opposed with his kingdom. We will see that as we walk through the chapters ahead. And Jesus is seeking to encourage the faithful and to warn those who are not ready for what's coming. And he says to them, there is a throne above every other throne. There is a throne above the throne of Rome. There is a throne above the throne of Domitian. There is one who is sovereign. There is one who is powerful. There is one who is glorious. There is only one who is worthy of your praise, of your worship, of your life. John Stott writes this. What could a few defenseless Christians do if an imperial edict were to banish them from the face of the earth? Already the powers of darkness seemed to be closing in upon them. The hearts of Christians began to tremble like the trees of the forest in the wind. And to believers living in this time, with this crisis about to break, where things were about to get worse, Jesus pulls back the curtain and John sees. That there is a throne that is above every other throne. That there is a glorious king who sits upon it. And he says, look! A throne. I want to suggest, in response to a third question, how should we respond? I want to suggest two, two responses, two movements. First, this vision, this text needs to move us to worship. We were created to worship. To be human is to be a worshiper. It's not a question of whether you will worship or not. It is merely a question of who or what you will worship. Some of you might be familiar with David Foster Wallace, an American novelist and English professor who tragically took his own life in 2008. Wallace writes this. This is a long quote, but I want to read it to you. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's not a matter of if you worship. It's a matter of who or what we worship. To be human is to be a worshiper. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question, what is the chief end of man? And in response, the answer is simply this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were made by God for God. We were made to worship Him. We were made to give Him praise, to declare His greatness, to give Him thanks and honor. I want to speak for a moment to those here or online with us this morning who have not put their faith in Jesus. I want you to know, I want you to hear, I want you to think deeply right now about who it is what it is that you are worshiping, what it is you are looking to to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart because you are a worshiper. And I want to declare to you that God loves you, that Jesus came, God in the flesh, out of love for you and gave his life for you so that you would know him, so that you would worship him because that is what you were made for, to know him and worship him, to delight yourself in him and Him alone, and anything else you pursue. And you can try this, but anything else you pursue will leave you empty, will leave you unsatisfied, will leave you longing, because until you rest in Jesus, you will remain restless. You were made to worship Him. To all of us, This is the end for which we were created, to worship God, to praise God, to join in with this heavenly worship service. I love what Daryl Johnson writes. He, He writes, when we go to worship, we are entering a service already in progress, Worship does not begin with us, and it will not end with us. When we gather to worship, we step into a worship service that has been going on for a long time. Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover. John sees a throne, and around the throne, he sees the people of God worshiping. He sees all of creation worshiping. That is a worship service, a worship gathering that goes on from all eternity. It's not one moment in time. It's not on a timeline. This is a vision of what is really real. God in His glory being worshipped. And I love this idea that that worship never begins with us. We step into a worship already in progress. And when we live as worshippers, the one who sits on the throne, when we worship Him above everything else, we will find ourselves transformed. We will find our lives changed, our affections changed. Eugene Peterson writes, the end result of the act of worship is that our lives are turned around. God, not the ego, is the center. The self is no longer the hub of reality as sin seduces us into supposing. When we worship the glorious and almighty one who sits on the throne... We begin to live in light of what is really real. In light of what is really true. And that leads us to the second response that I want to share with you this morning. First, this text, this vision, needs to move us to worship. And second, this vision moves us to great boldness a great courage we're called to look up to see what is true even right now to see that, that God in his glory is on the throne that is above every other throne that it does not matter what Domitian does, it does not matter what comes, there is one who is greater than all, who sits on the throne and has power and authority over all, who deserves our worship and so we can pour out our lives with great boldness and courage look Throne in heaven. I don't know about you, but there are moments this week I had a few moments listening to the news, reading the news, and I just like, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. The world seems to be falling apart. The hatred, the animosity, the chaos, the dissension. And then we're called to look And we don't need to worry. It's not about who's on thrones, who's leaders of nations. God Almighty, God the Glorious One, sits on the throne that is above every other throne. And that, brothers and sisters, that can give us such confidence, such courage that we can step into each new day as disciples of Jesus. Because we see this throne That we know what is really real. We know what is really true. Though it is unseen with our physical eyes, it is so true and real, and it's right there, right behind the veil. Things are not as they seem. There is more going on than we can perceive with our physical eyes. There is a throne that is above every other throne. There is one who sits on that throne who is glorious and powerful, sovereign who is worthy of praise who is worthy of worship who is worthy of glory and honor and power the one who is over all things because he created all things the one whom we were made to know and to worship it sucks to not be able to sing but it really sucks to not sing this week and next week We just come to these chapters where where this worship service in heaven is open before us, where all of the people of God bow before him every time the living creatures worship. Oh, how I would love to just sing with you. Last night, I was here late finishing my prep, and I came in here by myself in the dark, and I bellowed out. all creatures of our God and King. To you, we lift our voices, let them ring. I don't remember the lyrics, sorry. <laughs> comes when I sing. We were made to worship the one who sits upon the throne that is above every other throne. And he's there now, worthy of worship over all things. Brothers and sisters, that is a vision we need to have. We need to see, not with our physical eyes, but we need to know that that is true, that is real. Right now, behind the curtain, God reigns in glory and splendor and majesty, and he sits on the throne that is above every other throne. Oh, that God would give us eyes to see! Oh, that God would move us to worship to glory in, to delight in, and that he would give us confidence and courage to face whatever this world throws at us. Amen.